welcome to the Blue Side Podcast, brought to you by Cambridge University Science Magazine. In each episode, we delve into the intersections between science, technology and society, featuring guest researchers who present a fresh perspective on their work, what goes on behind the scenes and the latest developments in their field. The Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Nature Careers. If you get a chance, take a look at Nature Careers' new funding website, which collates thousands of international funding and grant opportunities. So whether you're looking for an undergrad or postgrad scholarship, fellowships or funding for a project, try a search at naturecareersfunding.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blue Side Podcast. Today, Ruby and I spoke to Dr Giles Yeo, a Principal Research Associate at the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit, based at the University of Cambridge. We discussed his work on the study of obesity and the link between genetics, appetite and body weight, as well as his science communication work. Dr Yeo completed his undergraduate degree at the University of California, Berkeley, and later did his PhD in genetics here in Cambridge. As well as performing his research, he has presented documentaries for BBC Horizon and has also appeared on other TV and radio programmes. He has written two books and currently presents his own podcast. So, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Yo. Could you start us off by telling us a bit more about what you're working on currently? Um, what I'm what I'm working on, well, I'm, I'm a geneticist by trade, um, which is always, well, I like to think that's a good thing. My mother-in-law still speaks to me, so this is this is a good thing. Um, but actually, <laughs> I studied the, <laughs> I studied the genetics of body weight. Um, so my my which interestingly makes me immediately the bad person because people, because I study the genetics of obesity, to be fair, but body weight, it sits on, the end, on one end of the spectrum of, of body weight, but people immediately think that I'm giving people who are overweight, people living with obesity, an excuse. Uh, but no, I, I'm interested in why people are small, medium, and large um, in the food environment and the current modern environment we, um, we live in. So that's, that's what I uh, study and what I actually, what I teach here in Cambridge. Brilliant. And so from all of this research and all of your sort of research activity, what have you learned about body weight and appetite and how is all of this linked to genetics? I imagine it's quite a complicated answer, but um, is there sort of a broad spectrum uh, answer to that? There is. Actually, in some ways, the answer is very easy. Um, um, in other ways, it's more complex, as most, as most things in life are. So I think there is a physics element to it, which always has to be there because it's a fundamental law. So the only way you're going to be able to gain weight clearly is to eat more than you burn. And the only way you're going to be able to lose weight is to burn more than you eat. And, and people always, sn- sn- you know, like sniff at me going, eat less, move more. Are you serious? Why are you saying that? Because it's physics, because it's a fundamental law. Where the complex, so that's how we get to the to weight we are. That's why people, some people are overweight and some people are not because they eat too much now. That's the how, though. The, the, the interesting and the complex argument is why. So, so why do people behave differently around food? For, for instance, why do some people respond to stress by eating and other people respond to stress by not eating? It's exactly the same hormone as cortisol, yet there's a bimodal, there's a diametric opposite response. Why do some people love food? I love food. Why do some other people um, use food as fuel? These are all different behaviors. These are the whys. This is why some people are more driven towards food than others. And this ultimately, in, uh, this ultimately influences the physics. So now we know that by its very definition, studying the genetics of body weight, studying the genetics of obesity, is studying the genetics of how our brain influences our feeding behavior. So I, I, that's what I study. I study how our brain influences food intake, and that's where the genetics lie. 
Okay, that's very, that is a very complex answer, but it's very interesting as well. So kind of what are the big sort of questions with this field in total? The big questions? I mean, I guess it depends on who you are. I mean, for someone um, who's studying disease, which, which, which I am, because I'm based at the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit. So we're a government MRC funded unit looking at obesity and it's metabolic sequelae, so type 2 diabetes, um, dyslipidemia, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the big question there is, well, a, a, a few things. How come some people can get relatively large and stay healthy? Why are other people skinny and unhealthy? And that, as it turns out, has a lot to do with your fat. So there are people actually studying that. Um, what I study and what I'm interested is what is this difference in food? Why do people respond so very differently around, around food? You know, this question I asked you about the stress, about why do some people eat when they're stressed and some people eat when they're not stressed? We have some ideas. We don't actually know. And this is one of the, this is one of the, 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 the key things. So there are big questions with regards to why different people behave differently around food and why people who are larger can sometimes be metabolically ill and sometimes people who are skinnier can actually be metabolically quite unhealthy. So those are some of the big, big things. And I guess one other big thing is speaking as a geneticist is as more and more genetic information is actually out there. Can we use this genetic information to predict some of these people to predict whether or not you're going to be larger, but healthy or vice versa, or whether you're going to eat more or eat less. Now that is more tricky. That is a little bit further down the road. We can't really, really tell yet. Um, but those are some of the big questions. Yeah, it sounds um, really, really complicated in a way, because I suppose as a geneticist, you, you'll be looking for sort of almost genetic differences that um, are underlying these different behaviours around food. But I suppose as well, do you often get people asking about, you know, the classic nature versus nurture, you know, how much of it is psychological? How much does that impact the way, you know, we function as humans as well? Um, are there sort of genetic markers that you can kind of link? Uh, to people who are more likely to have psychological problems around food? Or is that part of your study? Or is that kind of more stepping towards the psychology part of um, food relationships? So that's a classical Cambridge multi-part question. Um, I, <laughs> I think, uh, so, so I'll deal with the last bit first. Okay, so when you're talking about, you know, does it actually go over to the psychological? What's interesting is um, and people try and almost separate out the psychological from the biological, whereas the psychological is simply a, another manifestation of the biology. And so when I'm speaking about the influence around food, I speak not only about I feel more hungry, and that is a sensation we feel every day. Clearly, it's something we, we recognize the grumbly tummy, blah, blah, blah. But actually, there are many, many reasons why some people are more driven towards food, are more, are more taken towards food. And this could be hunger. This could be more difficult to feel full. Different from being hungry, I want to point out. This could be more rewarding elements of food. Why do some people comfort eat? Okay, whereas other people don't. This is related to the stress question. Why are some people more responsive to advertising? And listen, the advertisers have known this forever. Yellow M's, you know, and, and, and things like that, where people actually are more susceptible and they target the people. Okay. A, a, a famous red canned pop drink manufacturers. Okay. You know who you are. I mean, I know because I've, um, I visited one of these places have fake supermarket aisles 
in which if they have a new can they want to promote, they sort of sprinkle it around, you know, around the supermarket area, uh, the test supermarket area, put little viewing things in which they can eye tracking software and get people to walk in just to see what actually picks it up. So, sorry, that was a very long answer. But my, my, my view is there are a myriad of different um, reasons why people are driven to eat from, from psychological Okay, to more visceral, I guess, would be a better, better feeling for it. hunger, fullness, that, that, that kind of thing. The first part of your question um, with, with regards to nature versus nurture, I think nature versus nurture is rapidly becoming a, a, an outdated use. Uh, and I've heard other people use this now, and I like it more. I think it's nature via nurture, because we never, as geneticists, we never study genes in isolation because your genes are there after all to help you adapt to the environment. So the environment always plays a role. I'll give you one example. So the heritability, this is the percentage of a given trait that is um, re responsible, that, that is genetically uh, um, influenced versus environmentally influenced, okay? Heritability. Um, the heritability of body weight is estimated to be around 40 to 70%, okay? So it's a range. And this has been calculated using twin studies, okay? And, and, and so why twins? Because you have identical twins and you have non-identical twins. So identical twins have a share 100% of genes. Non-identical twins have 50%. They share as much as you would with your parents or your siblings, okay, 50%. So if you study enough twins, you can take any given human trait and ask, well, what happens if you share all your genes versus half your genes and work out the heritability? That's how we worked out the heritability of, of, of body weight. But why is it 40 to 70%? Why is it not 50%? Why haven't I given you an integer? Why have I given you a range? And the answer is because of the role of the environment. And one of the roles of the environment is actually, interestingly, socioeconomic class. So I'll just use this as an exemplar. I've got a colleague of mine, um, uh, Professor Claire Llewellyn, who works down at um, UCL, University College London, and she runs the Gemini co uh, cohort. And this is a twin cohort, and she studies body weight. But what is unique about her twin cohort is she has um, measures of food insecurity or security, depends which side you're looking at, socioeconomic class, put simply. And what is interesting is that in households such as us, uh, middle-class households, okay, I'm, I'm making assumptions here about middle-class households, the heritability of body weight is 40%, okay, roughly. But when you go to the households with the poorest food security scores, people in the lowest socioeconomic bracket, suddenly the heritability of body weight jumps to 70%. Now, there is no genetic difference between someone who's rich, middle-class, or poor. Accident of birth, right? But put simply, if you are more susceptible not to say no to food because you respond to stress or whatever, then it's better to be in a house in which you have carrots and hummus in a fridge, middle-class people, um, compared to if you are in a food desert. If you're in town, the only food that's next to you is a, is, is a fast food takeaway that is cheap, all right? So if suddenly you're hungry, whereas you have access to more healthy foods or afford more healthy foods versus access to foods that are less healthy and cheaper, then suddenly you see this difference. So anyway, so when you may say nature versus nurture, this is nature via nurture. This is the nurture being bad. It maximizes the burden of your genes. Whereas if the, nature, if the nurture is good, carrot sticks and hummus, suddenly you're able to minimize your genetic burden. There we go. That's the long answer. I, I will endeavor to give shorter answers next time. 
No, it's that's a really it's really interesting. You say it's long, but it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm really it's really interesting to learn. So, kind of obviously, you've mentioned that you use like twins as these part of these studies, but how else do you kind of investigate the links between genetics and what you're kind of looking at in your research? You know, are you using model systems or is there something else? Okay, so twins obviously is one way of working uh, for heritability, in particular human heritability. Um, there are obviously going to be broader studies, observational epidemiological studies, and these are going to be bigger, right? Because twins tell you one thing, whereas if you want to um, look more broadly, so ethnic differences, for example, in response to health or, or any, any kind of challenge, then you need more population-based studies. Um, then it depends whether or not you're looking for normal body weight differences, or are you looking at the extremes? So, so in other words, are you looking for genetic mutations causing a trait such as severe obesity? Or are you looking for a, a natural variation? So all of these will then dictate what you do in terms of what kind of population disease cohorts that you actually be, be, be looking at. Um, but once the genes are identified, you're absolutely right. We, we do end up using um, animal models. A large part of that is because we now understand that the genetic, as I said, the genetics of obesity is the genetics of how our brain influences food intake. And last I checked, it's very, last I checked, it's very difficult to get in ethically and legally into, into a human brain while the person is still standing about. So, so we have to use animal models. And, and largely is mice because they are genetically tractable. They're mammals. And so we can do stuff with them. But actually, uh, um, I have done work on flies, Drosophila. Um, they clearly are flies and not mammals, but they breed a lot quicker. They're a lot cheaper. Um, I know people who work on worms. Likewise, I know people who work on far larger organisms. Um, a colleague of mine, Eleanor Raffin, um, who's here in Cambridge, and, and we work together. And she works. she's a vet. And so we work on dogs. And so we, for example, have, have found a key genetic driver for what makes Labradors you know, very, very food motivated. So... We, we, we use a wide range of different um, animal models or, and humans, the, the model that matters to, to most of us, depending on the question and depending on the experimental perturbation um, that, you are, that you're trying to, to understand or trying to, um, depends on the question you're trying to answer. There we go, that's, that, that's the answer. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like there's um, sort of lots of lots of flexibility in the way that you can ask certain questions in terms of you know how fast you want to know the answer. So you might use flies, and then if you want to look into something that arguably is slightly more sort of relevant to human medicine, you can kind of perhaps use different organisms. And and, and, so, and cost also comes into it. Cost also comes yeah, into of it. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, I can imagine. Um, and so uh, I had a question just about something that you mentioned earlier um, sort of when we started talking was uh, you were talking about um, obesity and your work, you know, around it and the fact that you've said that rather critical people might have been saying that you've been allowing sort of excuses for people um, in terms of understanding genetics and obesity. Um, and personally, I think this is I've, I've always thought people have been rather cruel in terms of judging people uh, on the way that they are, um, you know, not thinking there might be underlying reasons for it. So in terms of that, how does your research and how has your research affected current thinking on obesity? Can you see like a shift in the way that people talk about it and think about it? Or is it still something that's considered quite sort of new and um, people are still trying to get to grips with it? I think there is a change. So I've been in the field um, 
when the genetics of obesity was at its uh, infancy, um, not because I was some leader and I just happened to be a PhD. Uh, I just happened to be a young postdoc at the time. So this would have been the late 90s, 1998, um, or so here, here, in, here in Cambridge. And I think the difference between then, where we still did not know that the brain played, or we did not have the full evidence that the brain played the key role, um, then as opposed to now, there probably is a big difference. All right, but we were starting at a very low baseline, <laughs> so so um, I think we're nowhere close to where we need where we need to be. Um, for example, just to just to give you uh, give you an example, just um, I think it was near March or April, near the beginning of the of the year, there was a story, and this is by the way is not unique. This just is just the most recent one. There was a story of two children being removed from their family. I think it was a Bristol family. Um, because their parents did were were not able to get them to lose weight. They were removed from their families by a judge because the parent was not able to get them to lose weight. So these kids were clearly quite quite severely obese. Now, underlying this tragedy of, of, of them doing that is the fact that there is choice there. A is the parents' choice that they that the, because of the parents they can't get the kids to lose weight, or there's it's the kids' choice because because they are not able to to, to lose weight with zero appreciation, zero appreciation for the complex underlying biology. I read the judgment. It's because these are, these are available. The opening line of the judgment said, you know, I just want to be clear that these are children in a loving household. You can just stop at that first line. Right? <laughs> just stop at that first line. So why did you take them away? Now imagine if these kids had diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, arthritis, asthma. I don't know. I could name a billion other diseases in which the first answer, okay, not the first answer, it's a complex situation, but would you ever remove a child with asthma from their parents? I mean, when would you hear that story? But yet, body weight is perceived as a choice. So while we have made strides from a very low baseline, just that illustration, I hope, points out that we are nowhere near, this is an educated judge person, right, that nowhere near close to understanding. And, and i I. I think a good analogy will be that I hope that in some time in the near future, we will look back now to the to the 21st century and and view how we treat people who just happen to be heavier, okay, the way we now view Victorians in how they treated people with mental disorders. Okay, we don't, I hope we don't tend to institutionalize people now randomly because they have depression or, or schizophrenia or something along those lines. Okay, and I and I think we will look back in shame in the in the near future and says, "Oh my God!" Just because someone was slightly larger, what were we thinking? Uh, we're a long way to go. Well, that's a, just trying to think what to say to that. <laughs> very. I, I think it's important. I I think it's important as many people hear it as possible. Mm. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely an important thing what you've raised there, and you know that's where I guess this research you know that's where research and science comes in because you can start influencing these things because if these people don't know about what's going on i guess or they don't understand it's also interesting because it gives people perspective because at the end of the day look i am a reductionist i'm a reductionist okay M much like uh, mark you're a chemical engineer ruby i don't know what you i'm sorry i didn't ask you what do you do ruby Oh, I, I'm a microbiologist. You're okay, okay, you're a definitely a reductionist. Okay, so 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 so, so we're, we work on very tiny. In fact, I'm slightly small. I work on small vials of colorless liquids. That's what I do. I don't. But what a story like this reveals is perspective, 
And it gives the guys within the lab some, so why the hell am I moving these um, two microliters here and there? You know, and suddenly you realize, well, hang on a second. I might be asking a very specific question here, but the broader context of trying to understand the genetics not only has advantages for helping people with disease, obviously, obviously, but has broader societal implications. Mm. And I think this, I would hope, gives people, gives the folk that work for me, gives the people in our department, and, and more broadly, perspective about why it is so important we do what we do. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. And I, I just, I, I think it's so good to reframe, you know, the way that we think about obesity, um, like you said, because, you know, I just feel like it can't carry on like this, the way that the way that a lot of people still think is it's it is it is heartbreaking i think we will look back and hopefully you know think oh my goodness why did we ever let that happen so it's 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 um i don't know i just find it really interesting and like um encouraging that number one research is being done in this area and number two it's being discussed in a way that you know obviously through all of your outreach and stuff people are actually engaging with so it's super cool um but have you always been interested in this area of research? What did you do your PhD in? So, okay. So I've always been interested in genetics. That's for sure. I did it. I did, um, I did my undergraduate at the University of California at Berkeley. And I studied molecular genetics. That was, my, that was my undergraduate, molecular cell biology. And I moved to genetics. And then I did my PhD here in Cambridge in genetics as well. But actually on the molecular evolution of genes in the Japanese pufferfish, fugu rupapis. This is this is this is the stuff where you go. It's the poison. It's the sushi that needs to have a little bit of poison in it that makes your lips tingly. Very expensive stuff. Um, I did it with with a chap named Sidney Brenner, and we who um, um, here when he was when he was here. Um, I was his last PhD student um, when when he was here in in Cambridge. Nobel Nobel laureate, two thousand and two. But you know, I did it. Uh, so, so I did it. I did it on pufferfish, and so um, there are various reasons. Uh, and why, but as a model organism, it's a vertebrate, um, has the same number of genes as us of vertebrates, but has a genome that's 10 times smaller. Okay, so this is pre-genome project. This is how old I am. So it's pre-genome project. And so it, it was 10 times, because the, the, the vertebrate, because Fugu has a genome 10 times smaller, but the same number of genes, it's therefore 10 times easier to find and map genes. That's why we were using Fugu, all right? But as I got to the end, I was a very well-trained molecular geneticist because I was in Sydney's lab, but I realized that pufferfish genetics was not going to pay my rent um, um, just as a, as a, as a long-term career uh, prospect. So, so actually um, one thing led to another. I elected to stay in Cambridge with my, at the time, my girlfriend, now my wife, it all worked out. So it was good um, where I then knocked, I just, geez, I need a job. And so I ended up just knocking on, knocking on doors in the department, literally, and the second door I knocked on was Steve Ratley, who is um, um, my, still my head of department. Um, they had just discovered the first children with mutations that cause severe obesity. And I said, I literally knocked on the door and says, hi, do you need a geneticist? Ah. And he says, yes. I said, oh, hello. Um, I think it helped that Sydney was my supervisor. Um, so I was hired nearly on the spot. And so I worked, I began working on severe genetics of severe obesity. We had a couple of hits earlier on in, in, in my postdoc. If I had failed uh, over the first two years, I'm, I don't know, I might have left science or something like that. But because I had a taste of success by luck, I want to point out, I had a taste of success. Um, I ended up staying in obesity. 
then moving from severe obesity to more general body weight questions. So, 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 so more. And that's, so that's how I, by chance, serendipity is the answer. You know, it's a bit not unorthodox, but it's not the kind of traditional way you imagine, you know, you do all the traditional applications. I stuff. didn't plan. I didn't plan. This terrible thing to say, but I didn't, I didn't, it, I didn't plan. But it's, it's worked out well for you. You're here now. By luck. Yeah, by luck. <laughs> so kind of, you know, what, what, what do you find is the most exciting aspect of your research or this type of research? I, I do think it is trying to find more of the predictive element. Um, the, the, the problem is, well, it's not the problem. Clearly, our genes encode our biology by its very definition. But I think a lot of people misunderstand genetics as in what it can tell us. They think that your genes give you a point in space and time that like determines who you are. But it doesn't actually determine who you are. Your genes bracket a set of possibilities that you can be or become to some degree. Why don't I have hair? Because my genes. Why do I look Chinese? Because of my genes. Clearly, okay, that's limited amount we can do. But if I were Chinese in Shanghai, I would probably be shorter than someone who was raised, you, you, you know, on different food, for example. All right, just as, just as an example, I might be darker if I lived in the tropics compared to here. These, these, these are things which your genes cannot determine, but will influence. So the question is, can we use this genetic information and begin to make some useful predictions beyond what you look like, but actually, is someone going to be more responsive to a specific treatment, to a specific diet, to a specific uh, uh, perturbation, and, um, and therefore target to, to a specific side effect? Okay, A, a big problem with, uh, in, 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 pharma, in ph- pharmacology is you get the situation where you find a therapy which is helpful for probably 99.9% of the population, okay? Then suddenly you get a side effect because it's rolled out to millions of people and you get one or two deaths due to some uh, rare uh, biological explanation. And the drug company pulls it. They will not take almost any deaths that the the drug is pulled. Oh, you you, you know, what have you. But what happens if we can use your genes and say, well, okay, well, no, dude, you you are going to have a side effect from this. You get another drug. Whereas then all the other people can get a perfectly suitable drug for them because they're not going to get the side effect. So I think that to me uh, uh, has to be the, the most for me, for me, I'm a geneticist, uh, some of the most exciting things going forward. The, the ability to do personalized uh, medicine, personalized diets, personalized anything, to be fair, okay, um, because it's more efficient, because there are things which work for most people that is very easy to, relatively easy to get to. It's getting it to work for everybody that's difficult. And so if we can therefore use this uh, I think we'd be far more efficient. It'd be a far better use of our time and resources, which are limited by its very definition. If we can make predictions based on our genes about our responsiveness to, to these therapies or a risk of side effects. Yeah, that sounds like um, in terms of, sort of the future, I think predictive and personalized medicine sounds like it's, you know, it's, be it's the hot forward. buzzword. It is the hot buzzword, but, 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 I, but I do think it's important. It's the buzzword for, is it too buzzy? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think it is important. Yeah, it's there for a reason, for sure. And like people are talking about it for a reason. And, you know, to get rather abstract, I just had a, a, you know, I was just wondering. So, for example, if you had somebody who had a sort of set of predictors that would, you know, predict um, what 
sort of appetite they might have or um, how much exercise they're able to do and things like that. Um, at what point would, you know, intervention be, be begun as it were, you know, if we're sort of trying to prevent certain diseases and things like that, how can you imagine it sort of working at an application level? Do you, you know, if somebody came and they needed help with their weight, would they then get screened and then the intervention would be tailored depending on how well they respond to, you know, exercise or what their metabolic rates are like and things like that? Or would it start almost earlier before a worrying situation comes about? That's an excellent question. I think um, it's going to be all right, let me ask, let me deal with the first part of the question. I think the holy grail is for us to have our genetic information. <sighs> Leaving aside, okay, let me just, let me just, let me just qualify this, okay? Leaving aside the ethics um, and philosophical arguments about whether or not we want to do this. And I think that's of almost yeah. a discussion <laughs> for another time. And would you want to know and what happens if someone you don't want to have access to? Okay, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I think we need to think about this now. But, okay, let's talk about the technical and, and, and the realistic nature of it. Um, I think that there are solvable biological and technical hurdles that we can get to so that when you walk into your GP with syndrome, disease, condition X, that you will be a, we will be able to leverage some form of predictive information from our genetics. Um, how predictive? I don't ever think, due to the complexity of, of, of it, that you'd be able to predict that I might respond specifically to Satsumas, just, just as an example, all right? But would we be able to get to the stage, don't hold me to this, but do I think we'll be able to get to the stage of, well, look, this person appears to be particularly susceptible to higher fat diets, for example, or particularly responsive to higher protein diets, for example. And so therefore, this might be a good thing to do. Maybe you want to go slightly lower fat. Maybe you want to respond to a higher protein. That kind of level of prediction um, for diets, I think, is not unrealistic to foresee within the next 10 to 15 years, for example. Then there's the, then there's the question, of should all babies be screened from year dot? And actually, there is already a start of this happening where babies in ITU, for example, okay, so, so, so babies rarely end up in ITU, all right? But the babies who do end up in ITU because of some weird thing are now going to be screened whole exome sequence. So all their genes are going to be sequenced. So this can happen. The question is, will this happen to every single baby? Um, I think that the economies of scale will come into play. The cost will drop where it becomes realistic. Um, and then it's going to be up to society um, to decide if this is something that is, going to be, that is going to be useful. But in terms of the practicalities, I think that we will get to a point where the genetic test for every single gene we have is going to be as cheap or cheaper than some of the standardized tests we have now which means that it then becomes a realistic option to screen the whole population. What happens to the rest of the world? Do we want to do this? I think those are discussions. That's a different type of discussion to, to, to have. So you, you kind of, you mentioned there that obviously, while this could be a useful thing, of, but it's going to need to be accepted by society. So is this kind of one of those times when communicating the science to people is kind of key? Yes. 
Yes, I think we need to communicate now. I, I, in fact, I think we need to be, the genie is out of the bottle. Some people says, well, we don't want to do this. Uh, um, we, we don't want to have to screen everybody, what have you. The genie is out of the bottle. Not even sequencing everybody. People are already doing genetic tests on 23andMe, DNA Nudge, DNA Fit, and, and there's millions of people already. The genie is out of the bottle. So the government, uh, in many countries, not only here, but we're here in the UK, so we'll talk about the government here, have not... I guess they're worried about other things at the moment, but nonetheless, it is going to be existential. We're going to have this situation in which the genetic information is going to be more and more ubiquitous, and we're going to have to really think hard about what we're going to do about it. I mean, we have the advantage at the moment of the NHS and strong and the Human Tissue Act, which actually, uh, and GDPR, you know, and all of these things that are tied up, which protect our genetic information at the moment. But then that may be true for the UK, but what happens if it leaks out of the UK? What happens in other countries? We need to think about it now from policymakers and, and have the debate now because there's not going to be one answer. And not only that, what is going to be acceptable is going to shift through time. Of course it is. Why, why won't it, right? So what is not acceptable now may be acceptable um, um, you know, in, in 50 years time or vice versa. And so we need to have the discussion now. We're not having the discussion. How did you come into science communication and engagement? Was it something you've always wanted to do? Because, you know, you've done various TV programs, radio programs, you know, you've written books and, you know, you now have your own podcast. As with how I ended up in obesity, completely by luck. So, so what happens? There was one element that was not luck. What happened was the BBC were doing a program called What's the Right Diet for You? And this was probably my first real foray into just being an expert. And it involved a number of Cambridge researchers. They found me because they looked for genetics and obesity and, and I popped up, okay? Because not because I was anyone famous, but because I was a genetics of obesity person in Cambridge. And I was also willing to go in and, and, and you know, nod my head and, and be a talking, talking head. So anyway, so we did that. Um, it, was a, it was an expert rather than presenter role. Then this is where the luck came in. Then the BBC used to, I'm not sure they still do now, have a tent at the Cheltenham Science Festival every year. And so when, after the program went out, they then asked me, ooh, did I want to go along and do the Q&A with the producer and the presenter? Okay. And they'll pay my ticket. They'll pay my train. It will happen. It was on a Saturday. I said, this sounds fun. I said, okay, I'll go. And so I went, I sat in the tent and, and it was a packed tent. It was very exciting, obviously. Um, um, and, and people ask questions, but most people wanted to know about the genetics of obesity and not necessarily about the, the practicalities of making a documentary, which is fine. And so I ended up doing most of the talking. But unbeknownst to me, sat in the front row was a BBC um, um, exec, executive. Um, why would I know who this person is? So it was an audition without knowing it was an audition. So he came up to me after he spoke to me. He says, oh, we got to work with you. And I thought it was a little bit of media, blah, blah. But no, um, a few weeks later, a couple of producers came up. We talked. I had my first horizon. And then my second one, then I got the trust me with a doctor, blah, blah, blah. And then the moment you're in, they got you, right? They got you. And so, so it was entirely serendipitous that I ended up with, with uh, public communication. I just felt that it was a good, it suited my temperament. I, I got into it. The BBC continued to to. I, and I still continue to do by chance, entirely by chance. I guess it's just kind of how it all plays out. But do you really enjoy doing all that? Is it something you've always, or you always enjoy now? You're very happy to do it? I've never been a, as, as a character flaw, whatever you want to use. Uh, otherwise, I'm not a shy person. 
I think I am relatively lucid <laughs> in my ability to in my ability to speak. And so, and there's always been a little bit of a, um, a, a performer in me. I used to, oh, I still do you know, sing. And so, so, so I'm not a shy person. And so I enjoy it. I didn't go out looking for it. I think I was asked. I felt that it was important to share the work we were doing. Um, the opportunity arose. It landed in my lap the, 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 in, in reality. And so, so I just took with it and ran with it. Brilliant. It's so brilliant to hear about, you know, how you got into science engagement and everything. And yeah, I mean, all of your outreach so far has just been fascinating. Um, I've actually got one of your books I'm waiting to read. So oh, thank <laughs> it's you. been really interesting uh, to talk, sort of talk through it a bit more and like think about it a bit more. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy it. And so you're starting, you've got in your new podcast now. So I don't know if you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about it, if they'd like to listen to another science podcast as well. I know. So my podcast is called Dr. Giles Yo, Choose the Fat. Ooh. And it's, 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 um, it, it is me chewing the fat, but actually about feeding. It's largely about health about um, and about body weight, but more broadly. So I, I speak, for example, to an ex um international uh, miler, a 1500 meter runner from, from, from Canada, who actually was a PhD student. The reason why I know him, not because I'm so famous, but the reason why I know him is because he was a, he was a PhD student here in, in Cambridge in physics, the Canadian who went back. So I knew, and I knew of him. So for example, so I spoke to someone who was, um, you know, internet, it was very interesting about how someone who's internationally, uh, uh, um, who is at that level will fuel for exercise, which is very different to the way that I would fuel for, 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 for exercise. And things like that. I spoke to a psychologist about food and feeding behavior. And she, for example, uh, worked with uh, nutrition in, in women's prisons, just as an example. And suddenly you get this really, to my mind, and I, I realize I'm biased because, because, uh, uh, you know, because I'm, the, I I'm the host of the podcast. But then you end up with really this rich tapestry of information um, beyond um, the, the almost banal stuff, which I which I work on, so reductionist, you 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 know. Whereas you get this rich tapestry, and it's really really fascinating. Doctor Giles, you choose the fat. Brilliant! Can't wait to listen. It's sort of adding adding the meat to the bones of your research, and yeah, zooming out a little bit. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, it's been really interesting, and um, yeah, good luck with your podcast too. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a it's been a pleasure, Mark, and it's been a pleasure, um, Ruby. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did recording it. We would love to hear what you thought of this week's episode. You can get in touch via Twitter on at BlueSciPod or by email at podcast at bluesci.co.uk. To keep updated with our new episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on Anchor or whatever platform you use.